Now, I suppose the last few years have been very unusual with this pandemic. And as we've seen our nation and our world seemingly coming undone, there is a moral freefall that we are witnessing right before our eyes. And serious people often ask, well, what will be the future for my children or my grandchildren or perhaps our nation? Well, the only reliable source of answers for the future, of course, is God's Word, the Bible. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are currently in our series, God's Prophetic Schedule. Today, Pastor Carl will be preaching from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38, verses 1 through 11, in his sermon entitled, Russia's Rise in Prophecy. We must always remember that God is in charge, and by studying a passage like Ezekiel 38, we are reminded that God is in control. Furthermore, prophecy is given to God's people in order to prepare us, not discourage us, and in His Word, we can find great comfort. Please, Join us in Ezekiel 38, verse 1, as we begin. I want to invite you to take God's Word and turn to the prophet Ezekiel, the 38th chapter. If you're new to the Bible, if you'll just find Psalms, which is about dead center, and scan to the right, you will soon hit the prophet Ezekiel. If you are joining us for the first time, we just finished a verse-by-verse exposition of a book, and before we begin the next one, God willing, I'm planning to do a 15-week series on God's prophetic schedule, and this is the second in that series. Now, I suppose the last few years have been very unusual with this pandemic, and as we've seen our nation and our world seemingly coming undone, there is a moral freefall that we are witnessing right before our eyes, and serious people often ask, well, what will be the future for my children or my grandchildren or perhaps our nation? Well, the only reliable source of answers for the future, of course, is God's Word, the Bible. Approximately one-third of the Bible is prophetic in nature when it was written. And any serious student of the Bible will want to study prophecy. There was over 330 prophecies fulfilled concerning the death, burial, resurrection, and Christ's seating in heaven. Centuries before it ever happened, God wrote with unerring accuracy what would take place when the Lord came the first time. And only God, who has infinite knowledge, could gather together some 40 writers, most of whom never met one another from all kinds of professions, writing on three different continents in three different languages, and when brought together, there was one cohesive thread from Genesis to the Revelation. God said to the prophet Isaiah, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient time, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Indeed, he is. Now, people are troubled by the days we live in, The disciples were troubled on the night the Lord met with them in the upper room, knowing that he was going to leave. But he gave them a sense of assurance. In my father's house, there are many rooms, many mansions, the old English says, but a mansion today is like a big sprawling home. In the 17th century and 16th century, it just meant a room. And that's really how it's rendered now, even in the New King James. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, because I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am in heaven, there you may be also. And so if you were here last time, we studied Christ's return for his church, where he will take us where he is. 
a distinctly different event from the second coming when he comes back to the earth. And so what we learn from verses like this is that God is in charge. And when we study a passage like we're going to study today, we are reminded God is in charge. That when you study prophecy, there's great comfort. In fact, after Paul gave that great expose on the rapture, he concluded by saying, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, we often use prophecy to scare people. And I suppose if it gets someone into a healthy fear of God, that's a good thing. But prophecy is not only given to, quote, unquote, scare people, it's given more to prepare people, to prepare the people of God to live the kind of life that he wants us to live. Many pastors think, well, if I teach Bible prophecy, folks will just become irresponsible. Just the opposite is taught in Scripture. God's people will become very responsible. And so I mentioned there are over 300 prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ. There's three times that number concerning his second coming. And if we expect God to fulfill the prophecies in the same way he did the first coming, then we can expect God to actually, literally, plainly fulfill each and every word. There are sadly many who take a very loose approach to God's future prophetic program. They allegorize scripture, and we'll see that throughout this series. But every single prophecy concerning the first coming was literally, plainly fulfilled. And that's how we should expect the prophecies for the second coming. So last week, we discussed the fact that God has regathered Israel, the rebirth of the nation has happened, which is a prophetically required event for the second coming to happen. Not the, first, not the rapture, but the second coming. And so as we see the miracle of the rebirth of Israel, we are reminded that indeed the rapture is that much closer. In fact, when Hadrian around 135 B.C. dealt with the final revolt that the Jews had in this uprising against him, initially 70 A.D., Titus Vespucian, then some came back and tried to once again recapture the city. And there was a revolt. And so by 135 A.D., Hadrian was so upset with the Jewish people, he expelled them from the land. He renamed the nation Syria-Palestinia after their enemy, the Philistines. And so today we have the made-up terms Palestine and Palestinians. And he even changed the name of the capital, Jerusalem, to Elia Capitolonia. He hated the Jews that much. He wanted to literally obliterate them and wipe them off the face of the earth. But God predicted he would bring the people back. Now, both Moses and Jesus predicted not only would they be scattered, but God would regather them. And you might want to jot down a few of these passages. I think they might be helpful, especially as you witness to people in terms of what is happening in our day. Write down this verse, Deuteronomy 4.27. Moses predicted their scattering. He wrote, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. And you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. Jesus, by the way, taught the exact same thing. He's on the Mount of Olives. He predicted the destruction of the temple and then the scattering of the Jewish people. Listen to Luke's account, Luke 21, 24. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so what Jesus said began in 70 AD. Why? Because the Jewish people rejected their Messiah. 
They were not paying attention to the warnings God had given, to the promises he had given, and so they were obliterated. After the final cleanup, again in 134, the country was renamed, and for basically 1,900 years, any map that you would pull out, Israel was not on the map. Jot down this passage, Deuteronomy 28, 64. Moses wrote, moreover, the Lord God will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. Please note, this is not the Babylonian scattering. This is not the scattering by the Assyrians. This is not to a single nation, but to the nations of the world. Listen to what he wrote in Deuteronomy 30, verse four. Moses said, if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will bring you back. So again, both the Old and New Testaments predict not only will they be scattered, but after they are scattered to the ends of the earth, God will bring the people back. Who would have ever dreamed that in May of 1948, they would be back in the land after 19 centuries? When they were brought back into the land, there were approximately 600,000 Jews. In fact, Isaiah 11 names some of the specific countries from which God would gather the Jews. Not only the nations in a broad sense, but some specific names. For instance, in 1948, Egypt had 66,000 Jews. Today, they have less than 200. Iraq had 150,000. Today, less than 10. Syria, 15,000. Today, less than 100. Iran, 95,000. Today, best we can tell, 9826. Yemen, 48,000. Today, under 50. Lebanon, 20,000. Today, under 100. Ethiopia, 50,000. Today, about 7,500. It's a miracle. In fact, the Ethiopian airlift, if you remember it, it took place in three stages. First, Operation Moses in 1984, and then Operation Joshua in 1985, then Operation Solomon in 1991. The Jews brought in all these aircraft and all these Ethiopian Jews. Remember, Solomon had a lineage too, so you go to Israel and you see some African people. They're as black as you, Anthony, but they're Jewish. And that's because they came through Solomon's line. And these are Jews who practice Judaism. And God miraculously brought them back. And there came a point where that nation would no longer let any of the Jews leave. The rest are basically right, right now frozen there. Jot down this text, Isaiah 43, verse six. Isaiah 43, six. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Listen to Ezekiel. He's the prophet we're studying today. Ezekiel 11, verse 17. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you from the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Listen to what he said in Ezekiel 36, 24. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. And then at the time of the end, a passage we're studying today in Ezekiel 38 and verse 8, after many days you will be summoned. We'll see that verse contextually as referring to Russia and this coalition of nations that will come with Russia. They'll be summoned by God themselves to attack Israel when? In the latter years, God's going to use a hook. He's going to bring them back in the latter years and you will come into the land that is restored from the sword whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations. For the enemies of Israel to come and attack Israel in the latter years, they have to be first gathered from all the nations. Indeed, they have been. 
The prophet Zechariah, who lives about 480 years before Christ, made this statement, the Babylonian captivity is over. And listen to what he wrote in Zechariah 10 and verse 9. When I scatter them among the peoples, they will remember me where? In far countries. And they, with their children, will live and come back. So for the first time since 70 AD, both the Jews are in the land and the church, the body of Christ, are existing side by side simultaneously. And the fact that the Jews are back in the land is necessary, not for the catching up of the church, but for God to pull off the second coming because there are many, many things that have to happen for the second coming, nothing for the rapture. The rapture of the church is imminent, it could happen at any moment, whereas the second coming is a prophetically driven event. But who would have ever imagined that we would see to live what preachers dreamed about, what, that some spoke of 100 years ago and were laughed and mocked at, that Israel would be back in the land, and along with that, the moral climate that God said would accompany the coming of the Son of Man. The permissiveness and violence and lawlessness of Noah's day and the perversion of Lot's day. Who would have ever imagined how God would be setting the stage for Israel to make a covenant with a one world leader? They have to be back in the land. But now everything is in place for that covenant to potentially happen. Now, the first record of demographics since Josephus, the ancient first century historian, was on the earth was in 1880. And in 1880, about 3% or 25,000 Jews were living in the land that they then called, of course, Palestine. There were 7.8 million Jews who were alive at that time, as best we can tell, and about 3%, 25,000 were living in Israel. Hitler comes along and he annihilates six million of those Jews. And God often uses the wrath of man to praise him, and so God accelerated the process of bringing the Jews back into the land. In fact, the Bible teaches that God would use even persecution to bring the Jews back. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 16, 15, I will restore them to the land I gave their forefathers. And then in the next verse, he said, behold, I am going to send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. And afterward, I will send for them many, send for many hunters, and they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill and from the clefts of the rock. So God uses this metaphor of persecution, fishermen and hunters who will go after the Jewish people. And certainly he uses czarist pogroms and uh, economic discrimination in some nations of the world, the genocide of Hitler, the hatred of the Jews in Western Europe, and even more recently. What is happening in the Ukraine? Every day, Jews are leaving the Ukraine. I spoke to one of the leading pastors in the Ukraine last week, and he said, every single night we have Orthodox Jews staying in the very Bible college that you built. He is watching prophecy being fulfilled right before his eyes. God is gathering the Jewish people, and they'll spend the night there, and then they'll make the next day over to Moldavia and fly into Israel. For some Jews, they came back for economic reasons. Times were tough. Other Jews said, we need to be back in the land. The Zionist movement. The Zionists, beginning in the 1890s, were Jewish people who said, God wants us to be back in the land of Israel for Messiah's kingdom to come on the earth. And then God has to use fishermen and hunters to drag others back. 
We just read in Ezekiel 36, 24, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. So first God gathers the people physically, and then listen to the next two verses, Ezekiel says, then, indicating after they are gathered, then... I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's the second birth. Jeremiah states the same truth. So first they are physically restored in the land. Then after they are restored, God is going to renew them spiritually. And so state by state, nation by nation, The Jews, for the most part, have come into the land of Israel in total unbelief. But there's coming a day when they will believe Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And so in the very next chapter, you have that marvelous prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones, where God describes the the bones and the flesh and all these things coming together, which is a reminder, it doesn't happen in one movement but a series of events where God regathers the people and then he breathes into them the breath of life. They are born from above. They become recipients of the new covenant. And the scripture reminds us that that's going to happen after the church has been raptured, though there is some rattling of the bones today in 1948, if two Jewish ministries are correct, they said there were three known born-again Christians in all of Israel on the day Israel became a nation. Three believers that Jesus is the Messiah. Today, there are over 30,000 Jewish believers in Israel. There are congregations all across the land of believing Jews, who, by the way, also meet with believing Arabs. And they worship Jesus as Lord. And so God is working. It's not by accident. This is prophetically significant what we are witnessing in our day. So some came through the anti-Semitism and we're seeing Europe empty out of the Jews. Why? Because they're hated more and more, especially as Muslims begin to populate those nations. So where do they go? They go back to Israel. Now, in our day, the church, sadly, is largely asleep to what is happening. A lot of pastors are afraid to preach on Bible prophecy. Some think it will make folks irresponsible. Just the opposite is taught. When you teach Bible prophecy, it makes people responsible to do what God has called them to. And so God is like assembling this giant jigsaw puzzle and piece by piece by piece, the Lord is putting things into place. Now we're going to discover this morning in the war of Gog and Magog, Gog being Russia, that Russia was just a tribal nation when Ezekiel writes. But now they are a world power. This little tribal nation could not have overtaken the Jews. Israel was far bigger and greater than this tribal nation called Rosh in our text this morning. Not to mention what we're going to study in our passage could never have happened in the latter days of the end of time unless Israel were in the land, and indeed they are. Now here's a chart that might help you to put the book of Ezekiel together. I think it's helpful to see the broad context and then we'll zoom in on the specific context. And I recognize maybe some of you are so new to the faith you've never even read the book of Ezekiel, but there are three major divisions. As I read it and reread it and reread it and read it and read it and reread it again, in the first 32 chapters you have prophecies against Israel and the nations. Prophecies against Israel and the surrounding nations. 
Now, the chronology of the book is found within the book. Ezekiel is 25 years old when he's carried to Babylon, and he's 30 years of age when God calls him to be a prophet. He opens the first three chapters with his call, with his commission, as he describes this vision and this call from God Almighty. And then he begins to focus on Judah and Jerusalem for their sin. And because of their sin, God is going to discipline them. There were some covenants that God made with Israel that were unconditional in nature, others that were very conditional. If you disobey me, because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, Proverbs says, I will discipline you. And though there were false prophets that were running around in Ezekiel's day, Ezekiel and Jeremiah both said, no, you're going to be carried away. Now, there were three deportations And of course, Ezekiel, Daniel's carried away in the first, Ezekiel in the second. 586 BC is when Nebuchadnezzar comes down, destroys the temple, and crushes Jerusalem. That hasn't happened yet. And yet here's Ezekiel saying, no, it's going to happen. Forget these fellows who are saying, everything's fine, everything's going to be okay. No, God is going to judge you. And God is going to use the Babylonians as his servant in which to pull it off. So then after he moves from these prophecies against Israel, he deals with the surrounding nations, seven by name. You can read the list in those early chapters. If God's going to judge his people, he is certainly going to judge those people who are against Israel. And he writes about that. And again, it's an expression of what God promised in the Abrahamic covenant. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. You come to the second section of the book, and we deal with the prophecies of Israel's restoration and rebirth. That's chapters 33 to 39. That's the section that we find ourselves in today. And so Ezekiel is carried away into exile, and um, he reminds the people while they're in exile that it won't be forever, that they're going to be restored. And then he looks all the way down to the corridors of time to a future day that's associated with Messiah's coming kingdom, when God will, after he scatters the people again across the earth, he will regather them and they will have a spiritual rebirth. And so most of you at least know that great chapter, Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones. And again, one of the functions of the great tribulation period is to bring the Jews to faith in Christ. And we're going to see, among other things that God will use to prepare them for the preaching of the gospel will be this battle of Gog and Magog. And then finally, the third section, chapters 40 through 48, where he gives prophecies of the Messiah's kingdom. And he speaks of this coming uh, millennial temple. There's going to be a temple that's bigger than you can imagine. The specifics are given in, in Ezekiel, and God is going to use certain sacrifices not to propitiate him because the once and for all sacrifice has been dealt with in Christ, but as memorials to teach. We will see the children of tribulation period, tribulation saints who are born during this time to recognize the significance of the cross. And so these are all very, very important truths. Now, zooming in on our chapter today, he's describing a battle that will involve Israel's remote neighbors, not those immediately bordering the country, but remote neighbors. And it will include Russia, Turkey, Iran, Sudan, Ethiopia, and Libya. Now, Ezekiel will first picture this invasion by Gog and his allies, and then he will describe that after they invade the land that God is going to judge the invaders. If you want to take some notes this morning, three simple truths, I want to begin with the Russian adversary. The Russian adversary. Now, if you pay attention, 
this morning, I think you will see that the next major event, I didn't say on God's prophetic calendar, but in the Middle East, will be this battle between uh, uh, Gog and Magog against the land of Israel. Now, we know from the context that this happens at the end of time. Why? Because he is described in 36, I'll take your heart of stone, I'll make it into a heart of flesh. And then he expands it in chapter 37 in the valley of dry bones, I'll gather them physically, and then I'll renew them spiritually. So we're in the time frame of the time of Jacob's trouble that Jeremiah refers to when God uses this period of time to bring the Jewish people to repentance. Let's start with the first two verses. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man. He doesn't call him the son of man. That's a title unique to the Messiah, but son of man. And he does it over and over through this prophecy because God wants to underscore that this is just a man because the prophecies he preaches are so fantastic. God wants to underscore that he's just the recipient of revelation that it doesn't come from him. Son of man, set your face toward Gog in the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against them. Here's a chart underscoring three battles, as you can see. Here we go. Right now we're in the church age. The next great event on God's calendar is the rapture. And then after the church is raptured, there's a seven plus year period of time. You've often heard me say seven plus years, and someone asked me recently, why do you always say seven plus years? Because a seven-year period known as the time of Jacob's trouble, what Jesus calls the Great Tribulation, doesn't begin until this one world leader signs a covenant with Israel. And that doesn't happen immediately. Maybe there's a period of days, maybe weeks, maybe months, possibly even years. Though I think it will happen very quickly in light of the ramifications of the rapture. But then the tribulation period will start. And uh, it's during this time frame that we have, as Steve so beautifully color-coded, the Battle of Gog and Magog in chapters 38 and 39. It could even happen before the signing of the covenant and after the rapture. We do know that there's going to be seven years. By the way, that's the length of the tribulation period in which the next chapter says they will burn their weapons of war. And then at the end of the tribulation, A second battle is called the Battle of Armageddon, totally different battle. We're going to see that the battle we'll study this morning involves a handful of nations. The battle that we're going to study later on in this series, the Battle of Armageddon, involves all the nations of the world, not to be confused with the third and final battle described in Revelation 20 that metaphorically is called Gog and Magog, kind of like today. We we speak, well, that's an Armageddon-like event. And people use that term all the time. Most of the time, they have no idea what they're speaking of. But God is speaking even of another battle at the end of the thousand years, quite distinct from this. And that too will involve nations across the world, not just the six or seven that we're looking at today. Please join us tomorrow for part two of Russia's Rise in Prophecy. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program GPS-002. Every word that Pastor Carl preached today was from the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Have you ever wondered how you can prove the Bible to be true? Well, in Dr. Brogy's book, How to Prove the Bible is True, 
Pastor Carl will examine five crucial evidences that prove the Bible is the Word of God and will share how you can definitively and accurately convey these truths to others. With a donation of any amount, you can receive a copy of How to Prove the Bible is True by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.